This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. If you're interested in Bitcoin or other tokens, FP Crypto Decoded is bringing together experts to discuss cryptocurrencies in the blockchain industry. Join us for unique insights and observations about this revolutionary new field tomorrow, November 18th, where our panel of experts will discuss the road to mainstream with FP staff writer Stephanie Hughes acting as moderator. Register for free at financialpost.com slash crypto. The internet was supposed to be democratizing. It was supposed to be a place where rich or poor, young or old, everybody had an equal voice. Instead, time and again, we've seen tech giants emerge which in various ways have canceled this dream for many people. Now there are some who believe that blockchain, the underlying technology for Bitcoin, can revive this dream. I'm Gabe Friedman, and this week on Down to Business, I spoke to Ethan Liu, a journalist, a contributor to the Financial Post, who knows just about as much about blockchain technology as anyone I know. Years ago, he invested in Bitcoin before its price rose astronomically, and he profited quite handsomely. He wound up writing a book about it, For many people, just listening to someone explain how blockchain works is enough to induce a migraine. So we tried to stay away from the jargon. Lou told me we already live in the metaverse. That is, we use the internet for email, for Zoom, for FaceTime calls. It's how we get news and watch movies. Basically, so much of our lives are already online. But he said we don't yet have any rights. And that's where he believes blockchain technology could come in. At a baseline level, you can think of this as essentially a public ledger that helps establish who owns what, but it holds the potential to do much more, Lou said. And I should mention, I'm fairly skeptical about the promise of this technology, not that it won't be useful, but that it will revive this dream that so many people talk about of democratizing the internet. So I tried to push back. In any case, I hope you enjoy the show. It's edited for clarity and brevity. Hey, Ethan Liu, thanks a lot for joining me on Down to Business. Oh, thanks for having me, Gabe. It's a pleasure. I wanted to ask you about your career and your bio. You have a really interesting career to me because you've gone to North Korea. You've written multiple books. You've got made lots of money from buying and selling Bitcoin. You've worked for Reuters. In some ways, like your career seems like it's got this mix of luxury and adventure and risk that I think a lot of people who dream about becoming a journalist think it could be like that. So I wanted to ask you what it's been like for you. So I think first off, I should say I don't have that much money. I had a lot uh, during the peak of Bitcoin's peak at uh, 20,000 US in 2017. But these things are always fleeting. I think maybe I have as much money right now as uh, as a lawyer my age, but uh, not a Bay Street hotshot, maybe just a moderately successful but unremarkable lawyer. I should back up then and ask you that. You started investing in Bitcoin before it reached its peak. Yeah, I I started in 2013 and the lowest I ever bought Bitcoin at was 200 a coin. Wow. And what's it at right now? It's at 65,000 US and I think it, it it reached probably on some indexes it reached 69,000 uh, just yesterday. That's incredible. What was it that drew you to this? 
Uh, well, I think lots of people, uh, everyone who invests in Bitcoin, they all have different stories and I'm, I always love to hear them. And it's not a single moment. It, it took like a whole year for me from when I first heard of Bitcoin to when I eventually invested. And it started with, I was in university and my friends and I, we were actually on the dark web. It was our first time. And this was when Silk Road was still running. And I basically saw that everyone was buying and selling services in Bitcoin. And that's when I first got to, to know the name. And the dark web is like the unindexed portion of the web, the stuff that's not going to show up on a Google search or any search engine. What were you, what were you guys doing on there? Was it just curiosity that drew you to it? Yeah, and I should say that while the dark web is most famous for its illegitimate uses, it has lots of legitimate uses. And Facebook even has a dark web web page. Really? Yeah. And, but we, we didn't really have a purpose. We were just, uh, we just wanted to see what the dark web was like. We've never seen it before. And, you know, it's probably the same reason why people climb tall piles of rock. Uh huh. Just curiosity. What, what are the legitimate uses uh, uh, that people do on the dark web? Yeah, well, it's for it's for places where the open web is monitored. It's for dissidents and uh, et cetera, et cetera. Ah, okay, fair enough. So you saw that everyone was conducting transactions in Bitcoin. Do you remember what your sort of initial idea was when you started investing money there? Was it just to make money? Yeah. So why people use it on the dark web? They use it because... Uh, Bitcoin, it, it operates on a purely peer-to-peer -peer basis. So there's no central administrator. So uh, there's no person that could be uh, subpoenaed or, and theoretically the funds can't be frozen. It's hard for the government to control that flow. Clearly, that had, that had a value, that had a use case on the dark web. And I thought that there are probably bigger, better use cases outside there. And, but I should say that at the time, I didn't feel this to, to like a 10. Maybe I felt it on a three or a four. It took a while, took almost a year for me to actually buy Bitcoin. Huh. And so you eventually bought it. And as I understand it, the price went up and down, but ultimately you made a lot of money and you were able to write a book out of it and sort of parlay this experience into part of your identity as a journalist, someone who's knee deep in this. And that leads to you getting invited to North Korea eventually, right? Uh -huh. Well... I, I think maybe invited isn't the right term because uh, I think every everyone was invited. North Korea advertised this conference uh, publicly, maybe not broadly, but publicly, and anyone could go. You send in an application and you pay a bit of money. You too could have went to North Korea. Huh? But I, but I, I probably wouldn't have. I mean, did you go as a journalist in part? Not really. So the North Korea trip that resulted in the arrest of someone who was there. His name is Virgil Griffith, and at the time, he was head of special projects at the Ethereum Foundation. But at the time, I did not expect a trip to make the news in any way. Also, I should say, uh, people go to North Korea all the time, maybe not now because of the pandemic, but they used to take tourists all the time, and I had always wanted to go. There was a time when I was training for this thing called the Pyongyang Marathon, so every year it held a marathon. Uh, they, they canceled that due to the uh, Ebola outbreak. That was 2014. But I've been planning to go for a while. Wow. And did the trip, I mean, did the country live up to your expectations? I, I, I guess uh, yes and no. So it didn't live up to my crypto expectations. So why I wanted to go to North Korea, one, uh, my, my personal curiosity aside, there's a crypto curiosity because subject to lots of sanctions, bad economy in North Korea. But 
theoretically, crypto is a way to get out of the sanctions because it's outside the traditional financial system. And North Korea has been accused of doing lots of shady stuff with respect to crypto. And I thought when North Korea advertised a conference, it was going to showcase its crypto capabilities to the world. And that's what the experts were saying at the time as well. But they did no such thing. And therefore, it was quite surprising to me that Virgil Griffith ended up arrested later. But on a personal level, yes, it satiated my North Korea curiosity. (laughs) It seems to me that lately, the zeitgeist of crypto or blockchain technology has to do with its role in the metaverse, which is basically this digital reality where our lives will exist online. A lot of people believe this is the way that the internet is evolving. And people see blockchain technology having a big role in the metaverse. Can you explain exactly what that could be? Yeah, I I, I definitely think uh, crypto not only will, but I, I think it should have a big role. And if it doesn't have a big role, it's going to be quite disastrous because I think partly we already live in a metaverse. Our, our lives online, so much of it is online and so much of it is very important to us. And I will, I'll tell you the story and stop me if you've heard it before. It's a story often told in crypto circles. Uh, it's about Vitalik Buterin and part of his motivations. So he is the co-founder of Ethereum. He's the main co-founder. He thought up of the project and he was an avid World of Warcraft player. And he played it a lot, very high level. And his warlock character can cast a spell that does some damage, but one day, just unexpectedly and arbitrarily, the company behind it just removed the ability of the the spell to cast damage. And in his words, he wrote, I I cried myself to sleep. And that day, I realized the horrors that centralized services can bring. And he meant that as a joke, but I think that underscores quite a serious point. If you imagine that happening in the real world, it's as if one day the government said, driver's license are... you can't use it anymore. You can only use it on certain cars just arbitrarily. And they can't do that in real life because the luckier of us, we have rights, we have to process. But online, and I know these are private companies, but we depend so much on them and we submit unconditionally. And blockchain and crypto, I think at its heart, it's uh, what Ethereum is trying to do. They're trying to have a, a more democratized internet where in a game, for example, you outright own your ability to cast a spell. Right. And and this is the utility of the blockchain technology, which it's essentially like a public ledger. And it's something that helps establish ownership of an item online. And the way I think people have described it that makes the most sense to me is that the internet is basically like a giant copy machine. You can copy songs, movies, and you can distribute them very widely very easily. And I'm thinking of like Netflix and Spotify and all these services out there. And so blockchain is a technology to police this, to establish who owns a song or a movie, maybe in some cases to regulate or restrict people from copying something. And I I understand why that will be useful as more of our lives move online. But it seems like the excitement about blockchain totally is about totally something different. It's much more about like making money. And like you said, decentralization, which I think of maybe more as a way of challenging existing power structures. And I guess I'm just skeptical that that it'll be able to sort of do that to challenge existing power structures. 
Yeah. Uh, well, I, I would say this field is still early. It's a little more than 12 years old and we are definitely not there yet. But I, I, I would also say that what you've just described, establishing ownership, that's essentially what a cryptocurrency does, so what NFTs do. But if you look at what else a crypto such as Bitcoin does, it's also about automation and without someone managing it, if you send something to someone, it just goes to them. And so it's user to user interaction. And so built on top of that, the idea of Ethereum is uh, they have uh, these things called smart contracts and basically self-executing programs. So if uh, you and I make an agreement and we each put up a uh, hundred bucks on the blockchain and if I ren renege on the agreement, my hundred bucks goes to you and that just happens. Nothing can be done. And it's like programming. It's, it's basically like a, a logic sequence. And you have a bunch of that. You scale that up. It's basically a program on the blockchain. And essentially, what people want to do is to have the services that we use every day online, but to have that without a central administrator. But so that's where I, I, I that's where I have questions. You mentioned Ethereum, for instance, which is probably the 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 most prominent company in this space next to Bitcoin, right? That's probably the thing most people know about. Isn't Ethereum going to be the middleman in a lot of these transactions? Oh, no. So that there's no Ethereum, the company. So there is the Ethereum Foundation and it supports the blockchain, but it doesn't own the, it doesn't own the, the, the network. But there are criticisms of how decentralized Ethereum really is because in 2015, so that there was a major hack on this thing called the DAO, which is, uh, which is a whole other thing we can get. It's like an autonomous organization living on the blockchain, but lots of money was lost. And Ethereum developers, they very controversially, they rewrote the blockchain to recoup the amount lost. So this was basically done by a vote, like uh, the Ethereum miners, people who uh, support the network, if the majority of them decide to go in a direction, they could essentially go in that direction. And so and the developers were very easily able to marshal support on that. And that raised questions of how uh, decentralized Ethereum really is. I mean, that's a great outcome in that case, right, where a bunch of money was lost because of a hack and they were able to just erase that hack. But the question that raises for me in terms of people want decentralization, but in some ways, these are these are like benevolent dictators almost. They can kind of control this for all of these technologies. Someone has to write and develop those technologies. And it's great if they're doing it for the betterment of the world. But in some of these cases, some of this technology is about companies trying to make money. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And there's lots of criticisms on how Ethereum's not necessarily that decentralized. But I would separate the foundation from the Ethereum network, though. So when the foundation affects a change, the people running the network, the users, I think right now the people who stake it because it's moved to proof of stake, they have to vote to accept the change. So it, the, the foundation doesn't really have like an iron grip on it, but whether it's truly decentralized, how much the foundation actually rules this, it's, I think that's up for debate. Now we're going to pause a minute for a short break. 
When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Yeah, I, I just I would love to play this out, this kind of decentralization idea. And if we look at Bitcoin, for an example, it's a currency that isn't controlled by a government and therefore it's less subject to manipulation. There's this sort of politics around a government currency that doesn't exist around Bitcoin. But at the same time, I always wonder, the more people move into Bitcoin or other currencies that are outside government you know, monitoring and jurisdiction, the government collects taxes and, and all sorts of other services that are absolutely essential. It just seems to me that this Bitcoin and some of the promises of it is also going to create a lot of problems as this grows. Yeah, I, I think I would, uh, I would separate the ideology from the utility in this case. And I think there are lots of people uh, within Bitcoin who would believe in not paying taxes. And who I, I, I actually know of someone uh, who uh, practically ran away from Canada, although it's not over taxes, but it's something similar uh, with respect to government control. But I don't think they form the majority. Uh, I think that there are lots of uh, Bitcoiners who are pretty okay with paying taxes. I paid my taxes and lots of people did. And uh, the Winklevoss twins, for example, they're the founders of Gemini, big Bitcoiners, and they are very pro-regulation, uh, pro-government. So I, I, I wouldn't say like all uh, crypto people are against paying taxes. That's a very fair point and a good thing to clarify. But so... Doesn't it get away, though, to some extent from the sort of purpose of Bitcoin, which is to operate outside of government control if, yeah, the justification for it seems to fade away more and more? Well, I, I don't think the, the utility of Bitcoin is in, is in avoiding taxes. I, I will quote you this example. There's a, there's a young woman in Afghanistan trying to escape and lots of the refugees, they, they leave without any money because the financial infrastructure is bad and the currency is bad, but she had Bitcoin because there was a period of westernization there. Women were going to school when the coalition-backed government was still there. And she crossed Iran and the Mediterranean and uh, her ship sank in the Mediterranean. But when she got to Germany, she had two Bitcoins because she memorized a password and effectively she carried Bitcoins in her head. And I think that demonstrates the, the, the true utility of Bitcoin. It, it's something that is resistant to, uh, I guess, geopolitical forces. Uh, it's, you know, they call it the honey badger. It's resistant to outside forces. And I think it's attractive in the same way gold is attractive. That's a good point. That's what I've heard people say, too. You know, gold is one of these assets that you invest in because when all else fails, when the stock market crashes, theoretically, gold is just going to be even more valuable. That, that's a good point. 
But I guess going back, you know, when we talked about the metaverse, that it's going to enable us to establish ownership of various items, whether it's a spell in a game or an original artwork as more of our lives move on to Zoom. It just seems to me that a lot of this idea of decentralization becomes less and less relevant. I mean, it's a good example of value, but can you tell me more about how the decentralization, why you think it's so critical for metaverse to have blockchain technology flourish? Oh, yeah. And so firstly, I think you've got to think bigger. It's not just, say, uh, owning uh, an avatar on your social media. The goal is to have social media that isn't controlled by a specific company. And we are not there yet, but I think that is definitely what we need because our lives online and uh, like I said earlier, the metaverse is already here. There, there was a time when the uh, Financial Times, they investigated how the Alexa smart assistant, how it curates the news it puts out, who is in charge of selecting that and how that will unduly influence the minds of people. And in much of the global South, Facebook, they have this free internet. It gives people a limited form of the internet curated by Facebook, but it's free. Lots of people in the global South use it. So their entire experience on the internet is Facebook. And so essentially, these companies control our perception of reality and uh, virtual milestones. They are very important now, uh, like getting verified on Twitter. Every now and then, you know, you see people uh, complaining bitterly and publicly why they aren't verified. I remember when I got verified, like my girlfriend excitedly texted me as if I had been elevated into nobility or something. And then I've seen people who lose their like, blue, blue check marks and they're very uh, depressed over that. And it's a few extra pixels, no real change to utility, but somehow it means so much. So I think we are already living in a metaverse, but... We have no rights that's ruled completely by these social media masters we ourselves. And I think blockchain is the way to prevent that. And how, how exactly will that work? Correct me if I'm wrong. The, the, the sort of belief is that it'll be like everyone on the social media platform will have a role in, you know, shaping the algorithm and the news that this social media serves up to you. Is that basically right? Yeah, kind of. So, for example, uh, why, why Bitcoin is so decentralized, it's that you basically need to control theoretically 50% of the mining power to, to control it. And it's, it's basically impossible. So theoretically, for a de- decentralized social, uh, social media platform, um, I guess maybe you have to control 51% of, of the nodes or whatever to, to affect any change. And I know it's going to be hard to implement and we are clearly not there yet. We might take a long time, but it's a good thing to aspire toward because the alternative is uh, these big tech companies is lording over us. Uh, so for your right to be skeptical, uh, I, I'm skeptical too. But I, I think the fact that we are on these platforms, uh, it, we are already here and we are already in the metaverse and uh, our representative governments, they don't have power there. Imagine if tomorrow Google just takes away your Gmail or Facebook takes away your Facebook account just for no reason that they don't need to give you a reason because they're private companies. That would hurt, right? Because you use that every day as if it, it's like it's not even an external tool, but an extension of yourself. And maybe you'll pry yourself to sleep, like uh, like what Vitalik did when he lost his uh, warlock spell. Yeah. Are there companies out there right now that you find especially exciting? Or is there an experience or something that you that you see that you think is really cool about this technology that's coming down the pike? Oh yeah. So this is actually something I wrote about one of my uh, columns at the post. So there is this company called Shapeshift 
And it's been around for quite a while in the crypto world. And it's founded by a guy who's quite firm in his libertarian beliefs. Recently, it said that it would dissolve its corporate structure and become this thing called the DAO, like this thing that we talked about earlier. So that would be a company living entirely on the blockchain and it would operate based on just ironclad pre-established rules. And so Shapeshift, it's, uh, it's kind of a brokerage. It facilitates uh, exchanges between different coins. And the reason he wanted to transform into a DAO was specifically to, to thwart regulators. And we will see how successful that becomes because as, as we know, uh, 2015, what we talked about earlier, there was a DAO, very famous, but it, it suffered from a, a colossal hack. And so I'm not sure if I explained this uh, acronym just now. The Decentralized Autonomous Organization. Yeah. And I think if it succeeds, it will spur lots of other similar DAOs uh, doing other things. So, and I wonder how the regulators will deal with something like this. That's great. I'm hopeful that this technology does work out. And I really just want to say thanks for coming on the show, Ethan. Oh, yeah. Thank you for having me. It's been a pleasure. That was Ethan Liu, a journalist and a columnist at the Financial Post and author of the book, Once a Bitcoin Miner. Thank you for listening to our show and supporting Down to Business by sharing episodes and rating us on wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks to our producer, Bryce Hall, for performing and composing the original music you just heard to Yadula Hussein for editing, and to Pamela Heaven for web support. I'm Gabe Friedman, and I'll be back next week. But until then, you can get all your business news at financialpost.com or in any of our five weekly newsletters delivered straight to your inbox, covering the economy, energy, finance, investing, and the workplace. 